Keynes and I were the best known economists. Then two things happened. Keynes died and was raised to sainthood, and I discredited myself by publishing the road to serfdom. (laughs) (laughs) And that changed the situation completely. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Robert Smith. And I'm Adam Davidson. Today is Tuesday, August 28th. That was Friedrich Hayek you heard at the top. He is one of the two economists, one of the two combatants, I should say, on today's podcast. It is a philosophical cage match. Two economists go in, only one comes out. Actually, I think I think come out. actually come out. We don't really resolve it. But it is a fascinating 80-year battle that goes on today, maybe more relevant this year than it has ever been. And we are bringing you today a refreshed, updated interview with Nicholas Wapshot. He's the author of Keynes Hayek, The Clash That Defined Modern Economics. This was one of our favorite interviews from last year. And because this clash is only more so in the news, we decided to re-air it. But first, we invited Nicholas to come in and, and give us a little update. The fact is that this election really is about two profound competing theories that really can't exist in the room at the same time, those of John Maynard Keynes, as you say, and Friedrich Hayek. Now, I I think we can say President Obama and and, uh, the presumptive, it's almost official Republican nominee for President Mitt Romney, Neither man has has professed himself to be of one particular economic school or another. Both men like to portray themselves as as pragmatists. And there's not much in their biography that suggests that they've spent a lot of time reading economic thinkers. But I think it is safe to say that President Obama's team is largely Keynesian, largely influenced by John Maynard Keynes. Paul Ryan, though, um, more than... I I think any major candidate since Ronald Reagan really says I am a philosophy driven person. And and we've heard an awful lot about Ayn Rand, the objectivist thinker who who Paul Ryan um, says also is a major influence. But my hunch is Hayek is a much more important influence on him if we want to think about how he's actually going to govern. Yeah, it's almost impossible to be a president who is, or a prime minister, whatever, who governs with Ayn Rand, she was the free market jungle theorist. That is, let everything rip and see what happens in the end. She was an absolutist. Uh, I don't think actually she ever assumed that anything would be put into practice. Hayek, however, uh, provided a roadmap for the way that people could go. And there's a whole school of Austrian economics, which is uh, in contradiction to the Keynesian notion, which offers an alternative to providing a stimulus and having the government try to get people out of a hole if they are in, as we are today, an economy in the doldrums. So now that it's not inconceivable that we could have a vice president and one day a president who is a follower of Hayek, it, it starts to make sense to think about a Hayekian government. And I want to talk about that. But first, let's just lay out who these two men were, John Maynard Keynes and Friedrich von Hayek, and what this clash of ideas was. Let's start with John Maynard Keynes. John Maynard Keynes, a young economist from King's College, Cambridge, brilliant. Uh, As a young man, he was so brilliant, he was taken in by the British Treasury to work on borrowing money in order to fight the First World War. And he was... uh, uh, he taught at uh, at Cambridge. Uh, he was hugely influential. And uh, what he really made his name with is a book saying that at the Treaty of Versailles, that if you deliberately cripple a modern economy like Germany or like the former Austro-Hungarian Empire, that it will cause such 
uh, a human misery that will lead to extreme politics and probably the Second World War. And because he was so prescient, he became very famous very quickly. And you, you say, you know, somebody who is an economist who works in the Treasury Department, he was not cutting the typical figure of an economist, a low-level economist at a Treasury Department. No, I think that his intellect, his genius was so evident to everybody and he was so persuasive and he was so able to describe very complex matters very simply so that even treasury ministers could understand it, uh, allowed him to be hugely influential. Six foot six. Enormous. Mustachioed. And probably one of the most exciting dinner party companions you could imagine. I mean, he knew everything was brilliant and hilarious from all accounts. Exactly. Uh, Lord Clark said of him, he was a man who couldn't dim his headlights. He was someone he was just always on. He was burning like a sort of phosphorus bulb. He was yeah, the most exciting person. I, I think, undoubtedly, if you were to leave Winston Churchill aside, he was the most dazzling and glorious Englishman of the 20th century. So take us to Austria now. Ah. Meanwhile, in Austria... Uh, the defeated Austria, there was Friedrich Hayek, who was a young economist who actually worshipped Keynes from afar. This was someone, after all, who had pointed out that Austria was in dire straits and should not be punished anymore. After World War One, the World very War cruel I. financial victory that the Allies imposed on, on Germany and Austria. Yeah, but the, the interesting thing there is, of course, that uh, Hayek discovered from his own experience and from his family's experience the damage that inflation can do to a society. He was one of those guys who took his pay home in wheelbarrows. His monthly check, which he was a government job, so it was infl- inflation adjusted, would just, they'd add another couple of noughts every month. It was an astonishing thing. And Hayek for the rest of his life, and Hayekians to this day, remain devoted to curbing inflation and keeping costs and prices under control, whereas the Keynesians were, were quite the opposite of that. Keynes was worried about persistent unemployment that uh, came immediately after World War I. So it's unemployment versus inflation, which is another way of looking at the Keynes-Hayek clash. Is, could Hayek dim his headlights? Was he a flamboyant and a dazzling personality? No, he wasn't, I'm afraid. And uh, it's, it's a shame because actually he was rather interesting uh, and very dry, very droll sense of humor and uh, much more interesting uh, than he, he appeared. But he was literally buttoned up. You know, he had a, th- a three-button jacket and all three buttons were done up, you know. Uh, and he, was, uh, he had very, very strong accent, very strong German-Austrian accent, which made him rather difficult uh, to understand. I mean, the whole the whole of this debate might have been very different if the two personalities were more equal, but I'm afraid that Keynes ran away with it in terms of uh, charisma. I mean, literally, charisma might have been invented for him. He was a man who's uh, even Hayek, I mean, not someone uh, often given to uh, generous prose about anybody. He loved Keynes. He loved the way that Keynes, just with his eyeballs, was able to seduce him. And uh, right from the very beginning, he always gave him credit for that, the fact that Keynes was such a powerful personality. So how does this fanboy, how does Hayek in, in, in Austria all of a sudden get elevated to be the man who will take on John Maynard Keynes? Well, it became because there was a man called Lionel Robbins who was the youngest professor appointed uh, to economics in the London School of Economics, and he wanted to set up something which would be counter to Cambridge. Cambridge was obviously the coming place. Keynes was on the move. He was thinking, you know, 24 ideas before breakfast every day. And people wanted to bring him down? Uh, A notch, at least. At least a notch, yes. I mean, you know what? uh, Well, the English are even worse than everybody else in terms of cutting down the tall poppies. There's no doubt about it. But at the same time, there was an intellectual thing. uh, Robbins was somebody who actually read German. This is very rare for an Englishman. And he'd actually read some Austrian 
Austrian economics. And there was, he knew that there was an alternative. And what he wanted to do is to make LSE the alternative to what was already burgeoning Keynesianism coming at Cambridge. He thought that it would be good for his reputation, good for the LSE. And so he was looking uh, for somebody to bring Keynes down. And he chose Hayek, rather like you might go out and choose a gunslinger in the Wild West. He actually chose somebody deliberately to say, stop this guy in his tracks. He's getting too powerful. Okay, so... so um Let's get to the intellectual substance. So, mm. so um, as I understand it, Keynes until the 30s is a brilliant but fairly tip classical standard economist. He really breaks with economic uh, the history of economic thought in, in the 30s in response to this puzzle, which – you know, classical economics teaches that an economy is going to heal itself. Prices will fall to the right point uh, when there's a slowdown and then uh, businesses will eventually start selling more at that price. They'll employ people. There cannot be a long-term, what they call equilibrium, a long-term period where people are completely unemployed and um, and, and there's no hope for economic growth. And And we should say in the U.S., we think of the Depression as only starting after 1929. The UK, it was pretty bad in the 1920s already Ooh. for quite some time when the global uh, depression hit. So um, so Keynes looks around and says, well, everyone's looking around and saying, you know, our classical economic models don't actually make any sense right now, but nobody really knew what to do about it until Keynes. So, so explain what Keynes' idea was. Yeah, Keynes uh, at first believed that an equilibrium in, would come to rest at full employment, that an economy in normal times would be at full, full employment. That's the message that his great mentor, Marshall, who was his great predecessor, taught him. Alfred Marshall. Alfred Marshall. But he said it doesn't make any sense. I've been looking at the business cycle, and what's meant to happen is that over time everything will come out in the wash and everybody will be employed. But it seems to me that uh, the equilibrium that you're promising never ever quite comes about. Why have we got such large persistent unemployment, which is why it's such a similar thing to today, of course. So what, what did Keynes come up with? How did he answer this? And well, Keynes looked at the economy in a different way. He looked at it from above. He looked at it as a whole. He looked as if it was a whole machine. And he looked at the constituent parts, and he came to the conclusion that actually if you change some things, it would alter other things. So what, what was it that would lift unemployment? And he came to the conclusion that it was a lack of aggregate demand, that it was, it was to do with uh, not enough people buying things. Uh, and that is, therefore, what he set about to do. How could you get people to buy more things? And if the private sector didn't buy things, maybe the state had to buy things. So maybe governments had to buy things instead, and they had to employ things, people, so that they could buy things. Now, there's several revolutions in what you just said. So, so one of the biggest revolutions, which applies in good times and bad, and really is the battle that Keynes has completely won, is defining something called macroeconomics. Mm. That before there was one economics, you basically, if you wanted to think how an economy works, you start with a person or a household or a firm, and you kind of build up from there. And Keynes, I mean, other people had toyed with it, but he's really the first guy to come up with a systematic way of thinking of an entire economic system, a macro economy. Absolutely. He's the big picture guy. He actually sees that, that it's a whole organism which is rather like a body, that each organ has different things to do. And that's exactly what uh, the economic world is like. And, of course, uh, as, therefore, he invented not only macroeconomics, but as soon as you start saying that and you start fiddling around with an economy in order to change it, you also need to measure exactly what bits of the economy are doing what, which leads to the other great invention of his, which was econometrics. Now, of course, he thought econometrics was rather tedious and dry, but actually most 
uh, economists today are econometricians, if you like. That is, they study models of things. They actually look at the economy as a whole and they try, like Keynes, to work out what you have to do with one thing in order to make another thing change. So, so every time, like we on the radio say GDP grew two point five percent, or the unemployment rate was nine point one percent, where basically we we could almost say. Because John Maynard Keynes completely won a major battle in the 1930s, I'm about to tell you some very Keynesian ideas or Keynesian-derived ideas. Like there's something called GDP. There's a mm. number that refers to the entire economy. Every day we're reminded that Keynes won this battle. And everyone turns to the government or turns to the central bank and says, what are you going to do about the whole picture? Exactly. That is Keynesian. Mm. And Keynesian... Uh, it assumes that governments are prepared to do things. And, of course, this comes about from the fact that electorates demand, voters demand that governments do things. They might blame the government if the economy goes bad, but the corollary of that is that they want the government to do something if the economy is bad. They actually, they, it's because they blame the president when the economy is wrong that the president has to do something or has to be seen to be doing something. And the, and the first great instinctive Keynesian, if you like, is Franklin Roosevelt, because he tried everything. He said, I'm just going to try anything you like, because that's what they elected me to do. This is so comforting to a population that is desperate, that is unemployed, that is that is poor, that's seeing poverty around them. This is this notion that someone can come in and save us, that there's a big picture, that, you know, it's, it's almost religious in its epiphany. Mm. So... This gunslinger, Friedrich Hayek, brought in, what, what could he possibly say to this, this, this hopeful philosophy, really, that Keynes had? Created by arguably the smartest man in England, the, maybe the smartest man in the world at the time. Exactly. What, what Hayek said, is said it's all very well. You can fiddle around with the economy if you like, but we don't know enough about the economy yet. We just don't know how this works. That is not a hopeful statement. It's not. No, it's a very pessimistic thing to do. In fact, Hayek admitted later in life, he said, I, I'm very disappointed in a way that my whole contribution uh, to the whole of economic <laughs> debate is to say, Probably not. Probably not. Don't 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 fiddle with that. You don't want to know what what's going to happen. He he said it was a bit like um, early surgery. You know, you you go to a barber and he'd hack off a bit of this and that. He said that's not what what you should do. And I would think a Hayekian would say right now, uh, sure, Keynesian, you can spend a trillion dollars or whatever building roads and bridges, etc. But there's Several thousand people, several thousand future Steve Jobs is out there in the economy, and they've got great ideas. And to the extent that you direct money towards these bridges or these schools or these government programs, you're missing something. There's some information out there about some idea and what people are going to want in five or ten years that they don't even know they want. Um, and, and you're just going to mess things up the more you intervene. Yeah. Hayek thought that prices were the key to everything because at least you could work out that if somebody agreed on a price, at least two people came to a, an agreement, which was something. Now, what surprised me about your book is I knew this was a philosophical debate. What I had no idea with is that, of course, they're both in England at the same time. It is a personal debate. They are mm. actually giving lectures that reference each other. They're writing, I would say, critical, cruel, scathing reviews of each other. This becomes a personal fight. Absolutely. Uh, as you say, usually when big movements clash, when New Newton and Einstein clash, it's generations apart or continents apart. In this case, these are two guys who actually were in the same city 
and knew each, each other. other and knew each other pretty well, pretty well. They actually quite liked each other in a weird way. They're a bit cagey, but on the other hand, they they liked uh, they knew each other enough to be able to sort of take liberties with the discussion, which of course led to the problem because when Hayek reviewed one of Keynes's books, which actually didn't say anything particularly startling or new, he did it in such a snippy, sarcastic, uh, coarse way almost uh, that. Keynes was taken aback. I mean, it was as if you'd punched Keynes on the nose. And yeah, he called Keynes, it unintelligible, unfinished. I mean, you, you call Keynes' work unfinished. Uh, well, Keynes might admit. I mean, you know, <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing is ever quite finished. But <laughs> Keynes' defense was, it's not fair you reviewed that book because I changed my mind after it was published. <laughs> exactly. You're exactly. not supposed to say that out loud. Right. And, then, and then he said, by the way, he said, by the way, if, if we're talking about rubbish, look at your book. And then he, he zapped into Hayek's book and said, that's just nonsense from beginning to end. He said that... If you read that book, that just shows uh, how if you extend logic right to the end of the line, you, you just reach bedlam. And so, and, and that was the beginning of what turned out to be a vituperative debate, which went on for 80 years. Because when Keynes and Hayek were so exhausted uh, to carry on the fight themselves, they handed it over to their... Uh, disciples. There was a group of people around Keynes called the Cambridge Circus, and they lambed into all of the Hayekians who were who had arrived at the LSE and were watching Hayek week by week and thought that he was their god. And uh, that, in a way, that describes today why this great clash of two irreconcilable different uh, approaches to economics remains about as nasty and vile and vicious as you can possibly get it. And we're just entering the nastiest, most vile almost vicious part of the campaign. So something for us all to look forward to, I guess. Yeah, I, I imagine. I mean, it depends. It'll be very interesting to hear what Mr. Ryan has to say and how much he talks about Hayek. Because if he really believes in Hayek, he really should explain what Hayek is and what he's going to do about it. He has a budget plan, as we know, which reduces or tries to reduce the size of the state. I think both sides would agree that the size of the state had, has to be reduced. Uh, we're in the middle of a recession. You, have, you end up with a lot of government spending. But where you go now in order to make the cuts is very significant. And unless... Mr. Ryan spells out where he would like to see a Republican administration go. I don't think he's doing the electorate a great service or indeed uh, treating them as intelligent. What he's got to say is that we will start cutting important things like Medicare. We'll have to start bringing a lot of soldiers home from permanent posts in Germany, Japan and so on. And what will you do with them? You have to fire them. Otherwise, you have to keep paying them. So all of these are immensely difficult choices that no one has dared speak about for a very long time. Reagan talked the talk, but he didn't actually walk the walk. He didn't do the business uh, when he was said he was a Hayekian. And it's because it's politically immensely difficult to persuade people that the entitlements, the welfare state and everything that they're used to is going to be boiled away. And that we need to pay for it, that, that if we're going to be serious, we, we sometimes need to raise taxes if we're going to be serious about balancing the budget. Uh, Absolutely. I should say that, by the way, that cutting taxes before you, uh, you have the money to do it is a very Keynesian idea. It is not a Hayekian idea. Hayek specifically said, unless the government's in surplus, you shouldn't cut taxes because that would only cre increase the debt. So uh, they're already sort of on the wrong foot from the, from the get-go. So one thing that really puzzles me about um, a Hayekian model of governance is we don't actually have a Hayekian model of governance. I mean, if you want to think about how Keynes can be applied in modern economic policy, all you need to do is look at every single capitalist or near-capitalist economy of the last century or the last 80 years. As far as I can think of, no 
government for a minute has been run according to Hayekian ideas. It's still a provisional idea. Yes, and every now and again there is an attempt. Margaret Thatcher was a great fan of Hayek, used to worship literally at his feet, uh, used to see him every year and get sort of pepped up by him. And she tried to reduce the size of the government. She wasn't amazingly successful at that. The present uh, government uh, in the UK, David Cameron's government, is very similar. It, it don't use the word Hayek, otherwise they would throw them out because it has such bad connotations, reminds people of Thatcher. But he has reduced the size of the state. Uh, but at the same time, it's ended up with him firing so many people from the state that he's actually ended up increasing borrowing. So even when you try to put Hayek into practice, it seems pretty contradictory quite often. Let, let's imagine for a minute a Hayekian United States, if, if a United States of Hayek. So um, let's just say, I, 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 you know, Paul Ryan... Um, is so popular, he, he, he actually becomes president. Mitt Romney mm. says, you know what, you're, you're the man for the job, and somehow we get a Hayekian sweep. I talked to some people at FreedomWorks, the uh, sort of Tea Party-aligned group, and um, they told me their goal is to make the Senate and House majority Hayekian, um, not necessarily majority Republican, but majority Hayekian. So let's just say they're successful, Ryan's successful, and we truly have a United States of Hayek. What do you imagine that might look like? Well, the first thing that would go would be the Federal Reserve. These people hate the Federal Reserve. They don't just hate Bernanke. They ha hate everything to do with the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve fixes money, and it does according to the administration's wishes. Now, Hayek was, if I understand correctly, not as much a gold standard guy like Ron Paul is. He was more a he liked the idea of competing currencies where different banks and companies could sort of have their own currencies and, and, and compete against each other. That's right. It was like the pre-Civil War era here where uh, there were competing banks. One of the problems about that, of course, is the banks that are competing. He said, you know, whichever is the hardest currency people will use and the ones that have uh, soft currencies will lose out. But the problem with that is that those banks that are soft go bust and they take with them a lot of tragedies, a lot of uh, homeless people, a lot of people thrown out of work, uh, a lot of business you know, going to the wall. So we have no Federal Reserve. Um, I, I know that he wasn't against the government providing services like a post office, or but he believed that there should be competing uh, private companies doing the same types of things. So maybe there would be a lot more um, FedEx and UPS type um, competing directly with the post office for just regular Absolutely. mail. Absolutely. They would be competing. But also he, he imagined that city governments would be private corporations. So Bloom Bloomberg wouldn't just be the mayor of New York. He would be the CEO and chairman of New York. I think he feels he is that. So. Well, he, <laughs> might, he might. He might. Yeah. yeah, I know. But the constraints of being as if employed, that is all of your services, everything to do with the government uh, of the, the city of New York coming straight out of the Bloomberg administration. And if you didn't like it, well, pack your bags and go to another co private company like Chicago uh, Limited, you know. So... Uh, Competition is red in truth, tooth and claw is all very well when you talk about it. In practice, it can be immensely painful. So I don't think you could probably impose a Hayekian solution in a single term or even two terms. We're talking about a very long thing here. And so you do need an enormous commitment for the president and for that Hayekian Senate to actually hunker down and do horribly uh, unpopular things, uh, maybe for a decade to, to push the old state a government system of ruling the economy out of the whole uh, body of politics. But Hayek does have some ideas that seem uh, almost like fringe left ideas. He talked about there being a minimum income for all 
people in a society, although he didn't – I don't think spent a lot of time talking about how much that would be or how it would be distributed. But he did say you know, in a, in a wealthy country, there shouldn't be anyone who's hungry. There shouldn't even be anyone who doesn't have access to health care. So it, it's tr- it's yeah. true. And this is a side that Hayekin has never noticed, even though it's in the book that everybody's read, which is The Road to Serfdom. I don't know why they've never read the key part in it where he says no civilized country should not have a generous welfare system, a safety net for people who fall through the cracks. Everybody should be provided with a home and everybody should have health care, universal health care. This seems to be skipped over by all of the people who call themselves a hiking because they're the very people who hate what they call Obamacare. And... But it's not entirely clear how that would work, right? I mean, Hayek didn't say, so therefore there should be a Department of Housing that gives everyone a house. I mean, it, he sort of seemed to assume that the government could could incentivize the market or something. It's it's hard to f- see what that would be like. That's true. Uh, if you were to follow a, a, a Hayekian thought, what you're really talking about is uh, – a, a faith in the fact that if you were to dismantle the government and take government's responsibility for running an economy out of the hands of elected officials, that the market would eventually come to an equitable solution that would make us more prosperous and more happy. But it's a great leap of faith, and it's actually very difficult because they never try to draw a roadmap, uh, even though Mr. Ryan calls himself a roadmap, and they never actually describe uh, exactly how we're going to get from there to here. Everybody knows where the Keynesians are. Uh, by the way, uh, everybody agrees, even the, many of the Hayekians agree that in a foxhole, that is when you're looking over the precipice of an imminent economic collapse, everybody's Keynesian. Uh, Mr. Ryan voted for the stimulus. He argued for his own constituents, his own voters to get stimulus money. So when it suited him, he too was Keynesian. But what we're talking about now is he's trying to sort of point a new direction. This is almost evangelical stuff. This is come with me, trust in me, I'll explain as we go along where we're heading. It's, it's not easy, and it's not easy for people outside of this who are not spending their whole life like you and me trying to get to grips with this. It's difficult for them to know, is he talking any sense, or is it just a lot of baloney? I, I do want to say, though, I do want to speak up for the non-Hayekian Hayek readers, because that, I think, is what I consider myself. I, I'm certainly, certainly not a Hayekian, and, and I certainly think I can say without being accused of horrible bias that I don't want to live in a Hayek world. But I find Hayek extremely helpful in thinking about how knowledge is distributed in a society and thinking about the various ways um, government officials can redirect society's resources, often to other powerful, connected people. I think there's much in Hayek that that, um, I would think people on the left and the right would find informative, interesting, smart, really insightful. I agree entirely. The fact is that Hayek has lots of lessons. There are all sorts of things that the government shouldn't be doing. You know, the government shouldn't probably be running the railways, for instance. I mean, Amtrak's a horrible disaster. Uh, Whenever the government tries to run what is effectively something that could be done commercially, they go terribly wrong. I think that welfare, for instance, obviously started off with the best of intentions. Now it's horrible. We have a lot of people who are incapable, really, of going out to work properly, because if they did, they would lose so much money from their welfare. There are many things that the government may well keep out of. It might be that actually private insurance is a better way of doing it than a single payer when it comes to health insurance. Uh, It's those sorts of arguments where Hayek's amazingly useful, and that's why uh, I think we should all be grateful that Hayek is there in order just to, as I say, put put some electricity through, but give a little test to, to those who would actually rather like a creeping state, which in the end would run everything in 
our lives, which would be, of course, intolerable, which is what, uh, what Hayek's great lesson is. If the government gets too big, then individual rights get trammeled, and he was absolutely right. And if you read, and it's well worth reading online, his Nobel Prize speech, he apologizes on behalf of all economists for having misled us into believing that they actually had cracked an understanding of how you could run an economy properly, perfectly. And he said, actually, there are very few things you really do know. Price is one of them, but that doesn't take you very far. Uh, so in a way, what he said that is that economics, and this is probably true of Austrian economists in general, is that there's just a limit to the way that this science can help us. Uh, we, we live in ignorance for the most part. Well, Nicholas Wapshot, thank you so much. The book, again, is Keynes Hayek, The Clash That Defined Modern Economics. John Maynard Keynes. F.A. Hayek. And we cannot do a podcast about Keynes and Hayek without playing you a bit of the rap video made by George Mason University economist and a Planet Money friend, Russ Roberts. He is brilliant, and he brought you this rap video. And uh, he did it with television producer John Popola. That's what we're going to leave you with. There's a boom and bust cycle and good reason to fear it. I've made my case ready. H, listen up. Can you hear it? I'll begin in By the way, another hat tip to Russ. He did a great interview with Nicholas Wapshot on his really great podcast, Econ Talk. You can Google it. It gets into more technical details, and I think it's a good compliment to this podcast. We always want to know what you think of Planet Money and what you thought of today's show, so please email us, planetmoney at npr.org. Or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter. I'm Adam Davidson. I'm Robert Smith. Thanks for listening. Don't look for a cure from the hair of the dog. Real savings come first if you want to invest. The market coordinates time with interest. Your focus on spending is pushing on thread. In the long run, my friend, it's your theory that's dead. So sorry there, buddy, if that sounds like invective. Prepare to get schooled in my Austrian perspective. We've been going back and forth for a century. I want to steer markets. I want them set free. There's a boom and bust cycle and good reason to fear it. Play more interest rates. It's the animal spirit. spirit.